Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Welcome. If you have a child through the age of nine, they can follow this trail to the back. And their teachers are waiting on them to teach them from a very gospel-centered perspective, especially taking the stories that are from God's Word and implanting them to the narrative of God's overarching story of redemption. And so we're excited that they get that opportunity to do that. If you're a guest of ours, welcome. My name is Chad. I'm an elder here at the venue and one of the pastors. And it's my privilege to welcome you to what we call our gathering because we truly view it as that. This is the gathering of the church. And so if you have a copy of God's Word this morning, we're going to continue our time by entering into a time of study through God's Word. And I invite you to join me in the book of Philippians, where we will be this morning, chapter 2. And this morning, I don't know about you, but if you've, you know, you probably can relate to this as families. You have your family unit, your family structure. uh, And every now and then, you just need to circle up the family and talk about family business. So, you know, you get around the table and say, we need to talk about some things that are happening that we need to do or grow in as a family. That's one of where Paul is going to take us this morning, to a look inside at the family, this family of venue, and what does God want to teach us this morning from Philippians about us as the family? How do we, what is the family business that we need to look through this morning? And so this morning, we're continuing our study that we've been going through for the last couple of weeks called Accomplished, the Church of Jesus. And we have spent the first few weeks of this series digging into the richness of John 17. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I shared and we started in John 17 by laying out the foundation for our understanding of the DNA of the church that Jesus prayed for in John 17. And this morning, we're going to build on that foundation that we laid by looking at what the church of Jesus should engage in. So we've seen foundationally what the church of Jesus is to be like. And this morning, we're going to begin for the next few weeks to look at what should the church of Jesus be active in. The study that we're going through is built from the beautiful prayer in John 17 between Jesus and his father. This passage has often been referred to as the high priestly prayer. And it is not only an intimate glimpse into the relationship of God the Father with God the Son, but it's also a glimpse into the heart that Jesus has for his bride, his church. And the foundational verse that we have built our series around is found in John 17 verses 3 through 4 where Jesus prays this. He says, this is eternal life. That they, referring to his disciples, referring to the church, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so the first week, we looked at the DNA of what a Jesus church would look like. From Jesus' prayer, we saw that that he prayed that his church would be centered on the gospel, that the church of, of Jesus would be a church centered on the gospel, that the church would not be an autonomous organization or event detached from its gospel roots, but the church would actually be birthed from the gospel as the visible display of the body of Jesus, the body of Christ to the world. So Jesus accomplished 
salvation for sinners. And the church then is the result of that work. We also saw that a Jesus church would also be connected as family, something we're really going to dig into today. But a Jesus church will be connected as a family. One of the main descriptors in the New Testament to describe what the church would be like that we can identify with to describe the church would be that it looks like family. Now, for some of you, this is a very poor descriptor. In fact, it is quite possible that between getting the kids up and ready this morning and rushing to get here and having that argument with your spouse on the way, you aren't that stoked about the analogy of a family even this morning. But spiritually speaking, we are a spiritual family. We have the same father. We have been adopted as sons and daughters, and we are brothers and sisters. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. It is a privilege. We have been adopted, not by our own doing, but because Jesus pursues us and chooses us as his family. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells the church in Ephesus that you are members of the household of God. Romans 8 says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we are family. But then we saw that a Jesus church would be commissioned on mission, that we aren't an idle family. We aren't an only an inward-focused family. We are a family that has been sent out on the mission. Christopher Wright says this in his book called The Mission of God, that it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. And not any mission, but God's mission. Or to say it another way, we learn from Jesus' prayer that the gospel of Jesus accomplishes God's plan through establishing a family on mission for God's glory. And last week, Dan unpacked from Colossians that as the bride of Jesus, we are to submit to Jesus. That Jesus is supreme over all things and we are called to submit to him The church, we're to see his preeminence in the world, and then we're to submit to him individually in our personal lives. And he focused on this amazing truth that just really stuck out to me last week, that God is the head of the church. And this would not only set him as supreme over the church, which he most definitely is, but that as the head of the body, just as the brain tells the body what to do, so Christ, as the head of the church, dictates for the spiritual body, who we are to be and what we are to do. The redeemed family did not choose their identity and activity, but instead are a people for his own possession. So because Jesus is the head of the church, he determines for us who the church is and what the church does, not the other way around. He is the designer of this family on mission. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it in a book called Life Together, I love how he describes community. He says, Christian community means community through and in Jesus Christ. On this presupposition that it is through and in Jesus Christ, on this presupposition rests everything that the scripture provides in the way of directions and precepts for the communal life of Christians. That everything that we can learn about the activity of the Christian community is found in its source, the fact that we are called to be a, a people through and in Jesus Christ. 
So this morning, let us not quickly forget that the church is not an event to attend, but it is an identity in which we live out. So I want to continue with this progression of unpacking the DNA of the accomplished church by talking a little family business this morning in detail about what the family is supposed to do, specifically in how we are to relate to each other as family. How are we as the family of God supposed to act like family? I'm going to fight the urge to talk about the mission of the family because Dan is going to unpack that next week as he talks about the mission. But instead, I want to look inwardly this morning, inwardly to see how the family of God is to interact and care for each other as family, as brothers and sisters. And to do that, we need to read the words of Paul to the church at Philippi. So if you'll join me in Philippians 2, and we'll start reading with verse 1. So Paul writes this to a church that he dearly loves. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So Paul is writing to a church at Philippi and tangibly reminds them that the church of Jesus is to be a unified family. If you remember from John 17, Jesus prayed that his family would be so tight. He says, Father, make the family so tight, so unified, that it would be on the level of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. He said, Father, make them one like you and I are one. And think of the intimacy, the level of connection between the Father and the Son. And Jesus is praying, I hope that you, if you will, make the body among each other to be as unified as you and I are unified. We were not redeemed to be isolated from the body of Christ attempting to live out our faith in the mission on our own. In fact, it's a very dangerous place to be. I would go so far as to say that it is impossible to live out the design for your life in Christ apart from walking in deep gospel-centered relationships with your brothers and sisters. When we were redeemed by Jesus, our identity then, we were instantly thrust into a communal identity to be Practice to be lived out in a consistent, connected context of family. 
if we're living it by his design. We are designed by the head of the church to do life through this intimately connected family. Now, we live in a culture that pushes back on this. We live in a culture that pushes us away from this mindset into a mindset of independence, to a mindset of self, into a mindset of freedom. Our culture is a narcissistic culture that focuses on self over others. And we are conditioned to not be dependent on anyone to not put the interest of others above any interest of our own. And so then church becomes an optional organization that we give attention to if we have time left, if we have capacity left. But the family of God focuses on spurring each other on, seeing the gospel come to bear on all aspects of our life. This is essential to the process of discipleship. You are the primary disciplers of the community. You are meant to play a role in the equipping and encouraging of others. So God's intention for all of us is to actively engage in disciple making in light of our unique design as family so that we both do the work of the family and equip others to do so as well. Now to see this in context, we need to know a little bit about the church at Philippi. Philippi was the first church that Paul ever planted on European soil. So Paul is very much compassionate and he's very much devoted to this church. He planted this church, the first church to ever be formed in in Europe. So he loves the church at Philippi and he writes this letter to them about 10 years or so after they were planted and he still writes with such affectionate words. But even though Paul writes this letter as a letter of joy, And it is a letter about community. The letter to the church at Philippi is primarily about a people on mission, practically and radically advancing the gospel together and working together despite the hardships that Philippi would endure. He said, despite what you're going through, I want to urge you, advance the gospel, press on. So Paul has just written in verse 27 of chapter 1 to kind of place this in the context of a familiar verse for you. He says that you should live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. He tells the church here, live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of what Jesus accomplished through the cross. But he also says that we must live lives worthy of the gospel together. In verse 27, he says that he hopes the church is standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says this gospel challenge to community, Paul writes, live a life worthy of the gospel, stand firm in the spirit with one mind, striving side by side. Unity should be the marking of the church of Jesus. So from this passage, what is our basis for unity as in a Jesus church? Paul begins the, the, the passage with some if statements that really are better understood as since statements or because statements. And these statements point to the unity that we are to have that will serve as the motivation for serving each other in community. So I want us to walk through these. What are, first of all, what is our motivation for family unity? If we're going to sit around the table this morning and we are going to talk with each other about what family unity that translates into service looks like, 
then what is our motivation for family unity? And the first thing we see from this is that family unity flows from the foundation of the gospel. He begins by saying, if or because there is encouragement in Christ. Paul begins by reminding them that as family focused on serving each other, there is great encouragement in Christ. Is there anything in life more encouraging and stable than knowing that we are in Christ? Is there anything more foundational that we could build on than knowing that we are in Christ? Our unity as the family of God comes from being overwhelmed by God's grace. Christians are stunned into unity. We're stunned into unity because of the scandalous truth of the grace that was extended to us through Jesus. We wonder how we can live in such a radical community in the world. We can do so because we have been redeemed and unified. The glue that holds us together is the scandalous grace of Jesus that was so undeserving, that we were so undeserving of. In fact, all actions of the family towards each other, and as we will look at next week, towards the world flows from the foundation of the redemptive work of Jesus. And Paul tells the church at Philippi to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. As the body of Christ, we make a statement to the world concerning our understanding of the gospel, not only with our declaration of its truths, but through our demonstration of lives changed by that truth. I want you to follow with me in this. The gospel of Jesus is about love. So our family should be marked by being known as loving people if we are formed around the gospel. The gospel is about the justice that God carried out through the death of Jesus. So we should be a justice-seeking family. The gospel is about the extension of life to those who are spiritually dead. So our family should be filled with life and hope and joy in our gatherings and in our relationships because it's formed around a truth of what Jesus did to bring back spiritually dead people to life. The Bible is about freedom and liberty. So we shouldn't be known as stuffy legalists who are motivated by rules instead of the gospel. The gospel is about humility. So we should be a humble people. But unfortunately, this does not always mark the bride of Christ. And the misalignment of the characteristics of our family with the truths of the gospel indicates a shift from a gospel-centered family into a self-centered, self-serving family. I believe that the only sustainable source of unity among the family of God, both local and the universal church, is the gospel. I feel that if we can agree on the gospel and the mission of the church, then we can find levels of unity to live out the purpose of the church. So we have to see, first of all, that family unity flows from the gospel. But there's a second point I think we learned from the very first verse as well. And that is that family unity flows from the consolation of love. He says, is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any comfort from love? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians a similar message to the church at Corinth. When he says in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians verse 14, he says the love of Christ controls us, compels us because we have concluded this. He says, why are we compelled by the love of Christ? Because we have concluded this. 
that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He said that love that was demonstrated through the gospel compels us. It controls us. Our actions are no longer motivated by other things. It's motivated by the controlling love of Christ shown through the gospel. Now, culture defines love as selfish and self-serving and very conditional. But the love of God demonstrated through Christ redefines and reshapes for us that foundation. Christ's love is so selfless and so humble and so unconditional. And this drives us to unity as the body. We serve each other out of a love that we've experienced. It controls us. And when we are encouraged by the vertical love of the Father... We are eager to love and serve each other with the horizontal love as brothers and sisters. We're eager to see growth towards Christ happen. But then also the third thing about family uh, motivation. Family unity flows from the fellowship with the Spirit. Now this is critical. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, the gospel, if there's any comfort from love, the love we've experienced, if there's any participation in the Spirit. Now what's going on here? I believe that Paul wants to show the church at Philippi the type of community that he is calling us to be is a community that can only be formed and sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit, which indwells in each of us, that frees our hearts then to unified fellowship. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit that produces the fruit in us, that produces love for each other. And an attitude of grace among us as family. To put it another way, we share in the fellowship of the Spirit. Now, there's a Greek word for fellowship that Paul uses uh, throughout uh, Philippians, specifically in chapter 1, verse 5, where he uses this word. And it's a word that that, that is quantania. And quantania is a Greek word, which means fellowship. And it would define the marking of a Christian community that can only be sustained by the Holy Spirit. So it was this type of community that is spirit-formed. And so the spirit inside of us unifies us as this family of God. We see in Romans 8, verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, the spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is a spirit led community. This is a community that is unified because of the fellowship through the Spirit. But then the other motivation we see, the final one, is that family unity flows from the affection and mercy of the saints. Paul says in this passage that this unity brings such joy to him. Look back at verse 2 how he says this. He says, complete my joy. This is Paul in his apostolic role over this church saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul loved the church. He said that the unity that is formed around the gospel and sustained through the spirit is a church that brings a unity of mind, a unity of love, being in full accord. And Paul says, this completes my joy. I can tell you as a pastor, a minister's well-being is closely tied to the unity and growth of the body. The unity of the family 
the unity of the family is we're, we, we join in with Paul saying, you know, there's joy in that. There's great joy in seeing unity among the family. Now, is Paul saying that a Jesus church will be conflict-free or always in agreement? No, absolutely not. We're human. We're people. Paul is saying that when the church is centered around the unity that comes through the redemption through Jesus, then it gives us a proper perspective that gives us a right motivation. And so from this mindset, Paul then shows us, so if this is the right motivation, then what will that do to our mind? What will be the mindset of the family then? And he continues in verse 3 with that by saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The church of Jesus, when we look at the mindset then that will describe the activities of the church, and this is where it gets very practical, the church of Jesus serves the family through Christ-like humility. So if we're a church with the right motivation, we will be a church that outwardly will serve the family within through Christ-like humility. Paul uses two words to describe the mindset of those who aren't living out of the leadership of the Holy Spirit. The first is rivalry. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry. Rivalry is a cancer to community. Rivalry is a cancer to community. When our hearts are in one accord, we rejoice when someone is being used by God for his glory. But when our hearts have disunity, then we, out of rivalry, take the mindset that we have to do better than they are doing. I've got to top their service. I've got to get accolades better than theirs. And this is a dangerous motivation and one that is centered on our own glory and not the Father's. John Stott said, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. I want to ask you this morning, do you ever find yourself being jealous for the ways in which God is using a brother or sister in your family in Christ? Do you ever have deep down a feeling of, man, I wish that that was me? You know, I, 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 don't, I, I want to be that person. You feel like you have to one-up them. Well, every member of the family should be aware of the presence of rivalry and selfish ambition and crush it. The church is not the platform to make an identity for ourselves. The church is not the platform to define our leadership and our gifts supremely. The church is a family where we desire the glory of God above all things, and that motivates us. The second word that Paul uses is conceit. The word for conceit would be translated from the word that actually means vain glory. Or to say it another way, empty glory. A a glory that is imaginative. It's false glory. Similar to rivalry, conceit would be the mindset that when you lose, when you can't perform as well as others, when you don't feel that you have outperformed those that you're envious of, then you have bitterness and anger towards your brothers and sisters because of the effectiveness they display. So you're, you're, you, you want to beat down their efforts at how God is using them. And when they fail, 
you rejoice in their failures because it has brought humility there. And Paul says this is dangerous, dangerous for the family. So how do we fight against this? Paul says in humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This was the attitude of Christ. And if Jesus is the head of the body, dictating the activity of the body, then if humility marks his actions, then humility should mark ours. Let's consider the head of the family. Consider the posture in which Jesus came into the world. Consider the posture in which Jesus died a death on the cross that he was not deserving of. Consider that posture and then weigh that against what you deserve. Weigh that against of this is about me, this is about self. When Jesus says, no, I humbled myself to the point of death on the cross. So the church of Jesus, if we want to serve each other effectively, it begins with a Christ-like humility. Counting others more significant than ourselves. I think we struggle with that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. But that leads to a second point. Because of that, we have to be sensitive. So the church of Jesus serves the family through Christ-like sensitivity. Look back at verse 4. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I want to ask you this morning, how sensitive are you to the needs of those around you in the family? Now, next week, we're going to talk about outside of the family, the world. But, but this morning, family talk around the table. How sensitive are you to the needs of those around you in the family? Or to ask it another way, maybe, are you so preoccupied with your own problems, your own issues, your own interests, your own activities, that you can't see the needs within the body? Or maybe you don't have the capacity in your mind or your schedule to have room for the family. Think about the course of your week. How consumed is your week with the things that are completely centered around your life or the life of your family. We clutter our lives with so much stuff that we leave no room to be good brothers and sisters to each other. We leave no space to disciple others. And this is not what Paul encourages the church to do. He says in verse 4, look not to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. In the original text, this challenge would have been open-ended. The word interest is inserted to this sentence to try to take in what was being relayed in the original text here. But it would be more of a blanket word to say, are you focused on your own fill-in-the-blank Or do you look out for others, fill in the blank? So to say it another way, let each of you not only look to your own financial affairs, your own family, your own health, your own success, your own growth, or your own reputation, 
Don't just think about it and obsess about it and plan for it and work towards that. But look to the financial affairs and the family and the health and the success and the growth and the reputation of your brothers and sisters in your spiritual family. In other words, Paul is reiterating the words of Jesus in Matthew 22 where he says to love your neighbor as yourself. So how are you doing with this? How sensitive are you to what is around you? Do you listen to people? Think about in the context of people in this room that you're in relationship with. Do you listen to them? Do you care about what others are struggling with in their faith? Do you have the capacity after you fill your mind with self to pour into others that they may grow in their faith? The family is the primary mode of discipleship. And if we do not have room and capacity to invest in others, then discipleship is not happening in the design way in which God created it. John Stott said again that only when we possess the grace of humility will we serve others with spiritual sensitivity. So do you, in your own life, are you able to serve the family through sensitivity? Then verses 5 through 11, the church of Jesus serves the family through a Christ-like mentality. So how do we shift the mental side of who we are? How do we shift this mental thing where we selfishly look to self? How do we shift that then to where we look to the mindset that Christ had? Verses 5 through 11 is holy ground in the scripture. Many think that this was a hymn that was written by maybe an early Jewish community and it would be sung during the Lord's Supper when they would take it and remember Jesus. But look back at the scriptures. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself And he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the man who was fully God humbled himself to the point of death on the cross and he says, have this mind among yourselves. Have that kind of mindset. The kind of mindset that would cause the, the full, fully God in the flesh to humble himself to death on a cross. We see in verse 8 that we develop the mind of Christ by reflecting on the cross of Christ. We develop the mind of Christ by reflecting on the glory of Christ. We see in 9 and 10. And this changes then our approach to the family when we think about the great sacrifice of Jesus, where do we find that drive to press on? We find it because God in the flesh humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for us. Paul ends this scripture by pointing us to the cross. In verses 9 and 10, 
He says, therefore God has exalted him and he's bestowed on him a name that is above every name, this humble servant, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why does Paul end with that? I think Paul ends with that because unity Unity is not the result of preaching and teaching on unity. Unity is the result of a people adoring Jesus above all things. That's our primary motivation. That we can talk till we're blue in the face about serving each other and and, and considering others more, more important, if you will, more significant than ourselves. And we can know that in practice and in, and in principle. But the way in which we're going to allow that message to move from our heads into our hearts that then affect our hands and our feet are going to be when we adore Jesus as the Lord of all. Seeing him as more important than anything. So I don't have to strive for all these other things. Jesus is sufficient. I can make room for other people because I want to lead them to see that Jesus is more significant. I can create capacity and room in my schedule because I want to use that time to fill it with the opportunity to show my brothers and sisters the beauty of Jesus and him crucified. So Paul ends this passage by reminding us that there will be a day come where every knee is going to bow before Jesus as king. And between now and then, our family should be the greatest apologetic to the world of the gospel. Our defense of the gospel should be lived out and demonstrated in our lives. If we claim to be a people centered around the gospel, if we claim to be a people redeemed by Jesus, if we claim to be his brothers and sisters, the sons and daughters of the Most High God, if if we claim that, then people should be able to look at the family and see what a family looks like that centers themselves around that truth. And if we don't, then we're giving the world a poor picture of what a counter-cultural faith family looks like walking in a broken and fallen world. Our families should demonstrate people who have been changed so that we don't think like the world anymore. We don't prioritize like the world anymore. We're a distinct community. Dan will talk about this next week. even, Even our distinctiveness as a tight family of God has missional implications as others will see, as Jesus would even say. They're gonna know that you are my disciples by your love for each other. Not only by your message, they should peer into your family and say there's something different about that kind of love and that should lead them to the understanding that we are disciples of Jesus. John, Jesus would say that in John 13, 34 through 35. He would say, this is a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let me ask you a couple of rhetorical questions at the end, open-ended questions for you to consider. Look at your life 
And, and, and I'm speaking on this so heavily because as a, as a, at a church like Venue, discipleship is happening in as much as it, you are discipling people. We see in Ephesians 4 that Jesus says that, the, that he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers not to just do all the work of ministry, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so for us, discipleship happens when we equip and train you as brothers and sisters in Christ to disciple, to be about what God has called you to do, to disciple others, to take two or three along with you on the journey so that then they can take two or three more and discipleship can spread. And so recognizing that, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Do you offer your time and resources for the benefit of others? Or even in, even in good things, is your primary motivation in your discipleship relationships what you get in return out of it? Or are you walking through maybe some of those difficult discipleship relationships where you're beating your head against the wall, wondering if they will ever get it, but you press on because they're your brother or sister in Christ? Or is it only about, I want to surround myself with people that I can just learn and glean from? Are you creating space to walk with people a few steps ahead of you and walk side by side with people who are walking step for step with you, but then bringing along those who are a few steps behind you? Are you creating that space? I really think the church has to be very careful that culture does not leak into our community where we then begin setting our priorities and our motivations around things of the world and justifying those things because we're called to be a different kind of family we're called to be a radical kind of unified family that has the mindset of God who took on flesh and died on a cross and an innocent man so do you have time and resources for the benefit of others do you have a desire I mean let's, let's gut check right here do you have the do you even care do you have a desire to see others grow and deepen in their relationship with Jesus? Does that matter to you? Jesus tells us his last words before he leaves the earth, when it, his last com- commandment for us. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. He says, that's what I want you to do. You're going to get all power and authority. He said, all power and authority has been given to me. He says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. But he says, what you're going to do is make disciples. Are you passionate about the Great Commission? Do you have a desire to see not only yourself grow and deepen in your relationship with Christ, but do you have a desire to see others grow and deepen in their relationship with Jesus? Third question I want to end with. And this is one that I have to be honest, is one I have to... Uh, work on some. I mean, this is something that I'm having to marinate and, and really f- see what this looks like in my life. And it is this question. Are you willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the family? I mean, that, that's, that's, that, I have to check up on that one. Think about the course of your week. Are you willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the family? I know that God has called us as brothers and sisters to the mindset that we should be able to. When he says words like, count others more significant than yourselves, look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
So maybe ask ourselves, is, out of that question of do we care about our brothers and sisters' growth, are we willing to be inconvenienced so that they may grow in their faith? And then lastly, do we leave room, mental room, room in our schedules, room in our rhythms of life for an interruption for the family? Do we prioritize our schedules and our minds and our rhythms of life to be lived out to serve the family? I know this is challenging. And I know that it is so countercultural. This is not the way the world wires us. This is not the way the things we are a part of. This is not how they wire us to think. Schedules are not supposed to be set up like that. Your mind is supposed to be focused on controlling what you can control in your own life. Our rhythms of life are to just juggle and keep everything, keep all the plates spinning without considering how our rhythm of life should include our brothers and sisters as family. So as we think about the church that Jesus prayed for, and seeing how Paul, so, so Jesus in John 17 says, God, help them have this mindset among you. as a flyer flying around me. Let this mindset be among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, God, will you make them one like you and I are one? So Jesus says, the unity of the family should be like the unity between God and the Father, God, the Son. And now Paul is taking what he knew to be truth about the church And he's telling the church at Philippi, this is what that's going to look like for you. This kind of unity. And then we ask ourselves this morning, as the venue church, how well are we caring for the family? How would you rate your connection to the family? How would you rate the unity that you have with your brothers and sisters in the family? I think we have room to work and grow. But I pray that as we shared at the beginning of this series, the point of this series was not to give you the, the DNA of Venue Church. It was to give you the DNA of the church that Jesus prayed for. And we want our church to align with that. And so may we take this heavy calling this morning, this heavy, heavy word, and may we consider how do we take God's word and how do we, we move ourselves to obedience to his word so that the church will be centered around the word. And that's my prayer for us as a church. So let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you this morning God, I thank you this morning that that we know one thing for certain. And the one thing that we do know for certain is that there is salvation through Jesus Christ alone. We have been rescued and redeemed by Jesus. God, we just thank you for that. But that is a unifier. That is a thread that is woven into the fabric of this family that is strong and secure and unchanging. 
And God, we thank you that you've shown us your sovereignty over life. And because you are sovereign, we don't come to you on our terms. But if we truly are going to submit our lives to you as Lord, then we give you everything. And God, that's where it gets difficult when we read your text, your scripture to us that says words like, if any man is going to come after me, he has to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me.